0: And now, a contest announcement. If you've been following us on our Twitter at TeleHell Podcast, you've been keeping track, more than likely, of the number of downloads that we've been having over the past few months. In recent weeks, we said that if we ever hit 2,000 downloads at any given time during our run, we would do a giveaway of some kind. Today, I'm here to tell you that as of this recording, we have not only surpassed that amount, but we have pretty much shattered that ceiling, getting a total so far of 2,139 downloads. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for listening. It it really means a lot to me. And now, because we have hit that milestone, we're going to do something that we do every time we hit a listener milestone of some kind we're going to give away some stuff. In particular, we are going to be giving away a couple TV screeners from various TV networks, mostly the ABC network, HBO, Showtime. We've got nine screeners in all, and some of them include shows like Black Monday, Smilf, Station 19, The Kids Are Alright, that was a good sitcom from a couple years ago, uh, Gotham on Fox, we have a episode of that, and it's nine screener DVDs overall, and you, yes you, listening right now, have a chance to win them, and here's how. On Monday, February 24th, we'll be dropping a special tweet that shows off all the prizes, and it's going to tell you to do two things for us. Like the comment, and retweet the comment. That's all you have to do in order to enter to win. Every time you do either one of those things, you get yourself an entry. So, if you like, you get one entry. You retweet, you get one entry. Do both, that's gonna mean two entries. So once again, keep an eye out for that very special tweet on Monday, February 24th, when we tell you what the prizes are. Then, all you have to do is like and retweet. Do that, and you're in. Plus, there may be a possibility that we'll be adding more prizes to the pot next week, but we'll focus on that once we get to next week. As far as how long you have to do this, we're going to give you until Saturday, March 7th, 2020. After which, I'm gonna look for one winner, and that one winner is going to get all those screener DVDs that I talked about, and that drawing's gonna happen on March 8th, 2020, and we'll announce it sometime later that week. Again, keep an eye out for that special tweet, like it, retweet it, and you'll have two entries to win all sorts of TV screener DVDs. And now that we got all that stuff out of the way, enjoy the show.
1: Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates
0: to Telehell. Okay, bear with us here, we're going to try something a little different this week. Partly because in order to get what we're going to do next week, we need a little context first. With that in mind, we introduce a new feature to Telehel that will pop up from time to time in order to keep everybody listening from going into our next subject, Cold.
1: And you know how we feel about the cold around here, especially once in a millennium when Hell actually freezes over because SOMEBODY
0: forgets to pay the magma bill, Tommy! But I digress. Welcome to a new feature here that we like to call... A telehell History Lesson. Since this is more of an explainer episode and less of a critique of something, this is going to be one of those times around here where we don't get to put anything into our nine circles. Again, we're doing this just to set things up for next week. And especially so here, because for this and most other history lessons, we'll be talking about certain elements of television that we take for granted today. But back then... They were considered great innovations. Having said that, this history lesson begins with a simple, yet subtle, piece of music. This piece of music is called Nicky. It was a song composed in 1966 by one of the great songwriters of the 20th century, though to people of a certain age, you might know him better as that guy who makes cameos in the Austin Powers movies. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bert Bacharach. The very same. He, alongside longtime collaborator, lyricist Hal David, would go on to write countless hits for countless musicians, to sing in countless movies and TV productions from the 1960s to this very day. As of this recording anyway. As for Nikki, Bacharach wrote the song in honor of his daughter of the same name, whom he had during a brief marriage to actress Angie Dickinson. Ask your grandparents who that is. Meanwhile, as Nikki was becoming one of Bacharach and David's lesser-known hits, a certain kind of stigma was brewing elsewhere when it came to entertainment particularly the notion that movie studios were quick to dismiss television as an inferior alternative to the motion picture industry that happened to horn in on its business. The movie studios responded by charging the TV networks obscenely high prices in order to broadcast studio films. While the networks more than made up for the price they paid for these movies with sizable ratings and ad revenue, the three television networks that existed back then started to realize, although the broadcasts of the movies were successful, it would ultimately hurt their bottom line if they kept investing in something they could really only air a handful of times, as opposed to a 26-week series full of original content. Fast forward a few years later to Los Angeles near the end of the 1960s, where a struggling TV network was not only trying to play catch-up against its established competition, but was also trying to come up with an idea that would set them apart from everybody else, something that people would tune in to see week after week and still maintain its ability to be unique every time somebody turned it on. That Network was known as the American Broadcasting Company, otherwise known as ABC. In September.
1: Think how much fun it would be in, September on ABC.
0: in its early years, The ABC network was seen as the run to the litter when it came to how they stood against the more established NBC and CBS, who already had a 40-plus year head start thanks to their respective radio networks and built-in name-brand recognition. This is not to say that ABC didn't have any hit shows in the 1960s. But considering that both NBC and CBS were practically responsible for content that would help shape the golden age of television, ABC was always left in the dust, given condescending nicknames like the Almost Broadcasting Company and also the butt of pointed jokes, the most famous of which was when an unidentified executive from one of the networks was overheard saying, quote, "...want to know how you can end the war in Vietnam? Put it on ABC. It'll be cancelled in 13 weeks." After years of playing the also-ran, ABC realized that it needed to step up its game a little. With the other two networks luring top talent and high-quality material, the network realized that it needed a game-changer of some kind. But what? The notion of a motion picture produced for television was not exactly a new concept. The first known instance of a telefilm or TV movie taking place happened as early as 1944 on what was once known as the Dumont Television Network, which is another history lesson for another day. Since then, the network sporadically aired these original productions over the next few decades, largely as event programming, but that's all they saw it as. A one-time thing that would get a little attention and utilized a limited amount of marketing, but not much else after the fact. Fortunately, because of how young the ABC network was, there was still some room to try out a few ideas, and the people who were running it were sort of playing fast and loose with how they wanted to fill their schedules. One idea in particular was floating around in the offices of the ABC network one day. Why not take these made-for-television movies and air them on a weekly basis instead of special occasions? While some were skeptical over the sustainability of such an idea, three people were the idea's biggest cheerleaders. ABC executives Barbara Seiden and Chase Mellon III, and perhaps more importantly, the network's vice president of development, a young 27-year-old television wunderkind named Barry Diller. Diller, who would later go on to become a titan of the industry, especially championed the idea for a weekly movie program that didn't rely on so-called actual movies. Not just because it would help the network save a buck, and fill up some much-needed time on the network's increasingly empty schedule, but if the situations were perfect, some of these productions would act as what's known as a backdoor pilot for potential future TV shows that would help fill up the network's holes even quicker. Hey, phrasing! sorry. Preparation on this format began in the start of 1969, as Diller and the rest of the ABC executive pool tried to land major deals with motion picture companies. The same people who, ironically, decried television for luring the audience away from movie theaters and tried to convince them to partner up with the network on such an enterprise. Unsurprisingly, most of the movie people, save for Universal Studios, balked at the opportunity not just for budgetary reasons, but also because of how the weekly features would be structured. Instead of airing a traditional two-hour movie including commercials, ABC insisted that the telefilms run only 90 minutes with commercials and start the movie at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. The network's reasoning was that both CBS and NBC usually aired their theatrical offerings at 9 p.m., starting things a half hour earlier, despite the shorter run time would give ABC the advantage in viewers. Despite those hurdles, however, the network was able to open the door for various screenwriters and TV producers who were having a hard time peddling their ideas elsewhere, partly because some of the things that they wrote had a little more of a harder edge than traditional movies. But we'll get to that part in a moment. Meanwhile, As the slate of the first season's offerings were being put together, ABC felt that because of just how unique this new format would hopefully become for the network, that they needed a way to let the viewers know that what they were about to watch wasn't just any piece of programming, but rather, dare I say, Dare, dare. An experience that people would turn into appointment television. But what would the network do to get people's attention other than simply saying, And now, our feature presentation. For that, the network turned to the graphic design team of Harry Marks and Douglas Trumbull. Trumbull in particular was in high demand as a graphic artist, having worked the previous year on this little arthouse film. Trumbull was the man responsible for the famous Stargate sequence in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Trumbull himself would describe how that particular scene, that monument in cinematic history, was made in this interview from 2015.
1: So I had been exposed to some things like time-lapse photography and what is called streak photography. So I, I realized that this was possible, and so I had to build a machine that would do this automatically over and over and over and over to make the frame. Each frame of the Stargate sequence took about five minutes of exposure per frame with the moving artwork behind a slit and a camera that had no shutter in it. The camera stayed open the whole time it was moving while I was moving artwork behind the slit. So it created a pattern of light. And I had to do it twice, once for the left side and once for the right side.
0: That technology would later be known as slit scan. And it was thanks to the use of this slit scan technology that Trumbull and Marks practically replicated the same Stargate effect from 2001 into ABC's future movie open. And we emphasize future there because up to that point in time, nothing this ambitiously ahead of its time had ever been made for TV let alone be broadcast on it. But aside from mesmerizing visuals, something else was missing from that opening sequence. After all, it was one thing to see that a show was about to begin, but how would people know that the show was about to go on if, say, they were in another part of the house? Well, remember that piece of music we played at the beginning? ABC requested that an updated version of the tune be made for their TV movie showcase. This time, composed by jazz trombonist Harry Betts and his orchestra. What resulted was a powerful, bold, attention-grabbing way to let viewers know that it was showtime. With all of the pieces in place, ABC officially launched its made-for-TV movie program on Tuesday, September 23, 1969. And it would become known as... The Movie of the Week. ABC's Movie of the Week became an instant smash and one of the sole bright spots the network had at that point in time. As week after week, the program presented original motion pictures produced especially for the network. What made these movies as popular as they were, however, aside from an eye-catching title sequence was the fact that most of the movies had a couple of elements that television would normally shy away from, especially back in the late 1960s. There were your usual comedies and dramas, but there was also an increase in the amount of thriller and suspense movies that would be seen by a TV audience. To say nothing of the subject matter that would eventually become the norm in future decades, but was still considered taboo to talk about back then. Things like... Unplanned pregnancies. You're having my baby, aren't you? What an
1: awful way to start out.
0: Mr. and Mrs. Bojo Jones. Divorce. Richard Burton stars in the
1: Tuesday movie of the week. Divorce his. The drama experienced by thousands of American men each year. Divorce his. And then her side. Divorce hers. Elizabeth Taylor as the estranged, the former, the ex wife
0: children out of wedlock. Are you Mr. John Gaines? Yes. Mr. Gaines, I think you're my father. Congratulations, it's a boy. Tense race relations.
1: I hear he was messing around with my sister. What's the matter? Fred, you're going to have Japanese relatives?
0: I drowned him first. War aftermath. Two years ago, in the belief that you were dead, your wife remarried. Abortion, which was just becoming an issue back then. An overcrowded nation accepts a new law one child to a family, one more, and the law is broken. And, just about everybody's favorite form of tear jerking, incurable diseases. Brian Piccolo died of cancer at the age of 26.
1: He left a wife and three daughters. He also left a great many loving friends who miss him and think of him often. But when they think of him, it's not
0: how he died that they remember, but rather how he lived, how he did live. That last one, by the way, was arguably one of the most successful movies of the week ever presented. 1972's Brian's Song, which won four Emmy Awards and springboarded the careers of stars Billy D. Williams and James Caan. Sean! Sean! <sighs> Sorry, I thought we'd all enjoy that joke. While we're on the subject of springboarding to success, We mentioned that the movie of the week was also the launching pad for several TV series, including classic hits like Alias Smith & Jones, The Night Stalker, Get Christy Love, The Six Million Dollar Man, Kung Fu, Beretta, The Rookies, Starsky & Hutch, and of course, Wonder Woman. But not the one you're thinking of! The movie of the week also launched a few notable careers. In particular, it helped catapult the careers of mega-producers Aaron Spelling and David Wolper, who would continue to see success with the ABC network throughout the 1970s. Dan Tanner in Vegas.
1: It's just like old times when Farrah Fawcett Majors returns to guest star. Angels don't do things like that. You're kidding, aren't you? On Charlie's Angels. I never expected to spend my formative years in Disneyland. This year, there's a new kid in the family. Hello. It's a brand new day for the Lawrences. She's a tough case. On family. they
0: a love boat. It's a big
1: waterbed. <laughs> Who writes his dialogue? It's happy land on the high seas. And paradise is as close as the next cabin, the love boat. Being the owner of Fantasy Island means never having to say you're sorry. You'll make your dreams come true, but
0: you'll never be the same after Fantasy Island.
1: I like stories with a happy ending.
0: But perhaps the best-known alumni that the franchise had ever given a chance to was the director of a 1971 thriller, where the main character spends most of the movie being chased by a menacing 18-wheeler truck, seemingly with no driver, and plowing its way through various spots in the desert. Uh, okay. You want to play game. The name of that movie was Duel, and the movie was the first feature-length film directed by a then 25-year-old Steven Spielberg. The movie of the week remained a ratings hit for most of its six-year run on ABC, including expansion of the franchise to a second weeknight and another airing late night on the weekends, and the format of the program was so revered among the TV industry that it did not take too long for the other networks to try and duplicate the formula of ABC's success. But by 1975, paradigms started to shift in the TV world. Because of factors like audiences wanting to see bigger stars, more sensational stories, and even the birth of a radical new idea called cable TV, the program suddenly found itself limping along in terms of relevancy. The final edition of ABC's Movie of the Week aired on May 14th, 1975. But just because the weekly presentation would be ending it wouldn't mean that TV movies would be going away for good. Especially with ABC integrating their TV movies into a more formal package along with their theatrical ones. ABC. Sunday. Movie: The ABC Sunday Night Movie. After all... They became cash cows for all of the networks, not just ABC. And over time, these TV movies would often be plugged in, just as their predecessors did, to keep the network from going dark every night regardless of how much quality would dip in the productions over time. Unfortunately, by the time the 1980s came around, and thanks to the rise of premium channels like HBO and Showtime, which offered uncensored movies 24 hours a day, the networks realized that they had to adapt themselves even further in order to keep their movie presentations worth watching. That and the quality of theatrical movies increased as well over that point in time, with big-budget blockbusters becoming more of the event program than the TV movie did in its heyday. So much so, that people started tuning in to see those releases more than they did the made-for-TV ones. But even more upsetting to those who were raised on the movie of the week, it seemed more often than not that there would be far less substance in some of these movies during the 80s and 90s, and would instead rely on things that just felt… dumb. Not disastrously bad, just… dumb. Like it was insulting to your intelligence to watch certain TV movies, regardless of how many gimmicks they would throw to catch your attention. And with that much of a slow burn setup in mind, this concludes our history lesson. Yes, we do credit ABC's Movie of the Week for starting a lot of trends and launching many careers. But at the same time, this also means that the next thing we're going to be looking at is technically their fault. Next time on Telehel, our mid season finale takes a look at one of those TV movies that fit into the dumb category. Then again, would you expect anything less from the West Coast? What would you like? What do you got? Everything. Robbie
1: Benson and Martin Mull. California Girls, the movie next.
0: Until then,
1: if it's not in Telehel,
0: it's not worth a damn. Telehel was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehel.libsyn.com. but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as
1: always, don't forget to like, comment, rate subscribe and share on our social feeds twitter and facebook both at telehealth podcast
0: uh isn't this the part where we fade out with that hissing sound whatever that is Are we supposed to still be going? Is there a reason why we have about six minutes left? Well, I can't just have dead air. Give me something.
1: You've got mail.
0: I've got mail? What the? Oh! We're getting fan mail! Okay. Alright, I can kill some time with that. Alright, let's take a look at some letters, and uh, can I get some fan mail reading music, please? Thank you we have a couple of fan letters, and actually two of them from one person. Fortunately, we have enough time to read both of them. And they come from YouTube user Gloryosky. Uh It's Glory and then O-S-K-Y. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he's got a website out in uh, Canada where he talks about various TV visual elements. And he writes to us. Uh, but he, in particular, is uh, Mr. Cameron Archer. And he says to us, uh, first, this note from January saying, quote, I actually did a live blog of the first episode of 2020 years ago. I don't try to promote something I haven't updated much in years, but I'm glad to see the first 2020 as the second season premiere of Telehealth. Thank you very much for that. It's a great start to the season. I'm also glad there's more info on the internet about there as well as actual shows from 2020's early years. I remember Sharon Kaufman's 2020 premiere was taken down from YouTube at one point, despite her legitimate role at the show. Also, ABC admits Harold Hayes and Robert Hughes's involvement with 2020 on a somewhat official website. Granted, that's a sales media planning website and the page hasn't been updated in five years, but ABC could have just fudged the details and pretended that Hugh Downs was there from the beginning. Yeah, uh, our first episode for those who are just joining us right now was the pilot episode of 2020, and suffice to say, it paled in comparison to what the show would eventually turn out to be. And if you listen to that episode on telehel.libsyn.com, it should be episode seven overall. You'll understand why uh, Mr. Mr. Archer feels this way. Uh, As far as uh, where I got the audio from, uh, I'm not too familiar with uh, who Sharon Kaufman is. I'm sure. I mean, if you say she's a of the of the production team I'm, I'm sure it's a legitimate thing but as far as where I got the actual audio for 2020 from, normally whenever I try to put stuff together I, I just go to YouTube and I dub it into my editing program and just strip the audio from that and I just went on YouTube typed in 2020 pilot episode and it was right there listed at the top one thing led to another and that's how you wind up with an episode about 2020. So thank you for uh, your comments on that and also thank you for your comments on the Oscar Snow White issue that we did a couple weeks ago, and uh, Mr. Archer once again uh, chimes in and says, I have a VHS recording of the 1989 Academy Awards. I think I used clips from that telecast as ringtones. It's obviously not in the quality of the YouTube clip that you use. parenthesis, I think it was recorded in EP mode off a Canadian broadcast, but for a thrift store find it's not bad in terms of finding cringe material. Yes, yes, very much. It was cringeworthy, and I kind of sort of made a joke like I had to stop and start the video on YouTube several times just to make sure I didn't laugh my ass off. I was very much, like, <laughs> it was it was one of those cases where you had to ask yourself, do I really want to sit through this entire thing? again and again and again and again, because you have to watch these things again and again just to take notes on this stuff. Uh, So, you know, at least it's a demon that's now properly exorcised, and uh, he goes on to say, Mr. Archer goes on to say, uh, as for Alan Carr, there's a Tomorrow Show interview, that's uh, Tom Snyder's old show, and it was from 1980 where he discredits the Oscars, or Alan Carr discredits the Oscars, that is, as unglamorous. That interview is likely sourced from Shout Factory's Tomorrow Show Punkin' New Wave DVD, and my God, he says. It does not get focused on, given his episode is more known for the John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten interview. Uh, Johnny Rotten, of course, from the Sex Pistols. He says hearing Carr talk about wiring his jaw shut is one of the few times I've ever resented an interview subject just by hearing the subject talk. Uh, Also, Carr was on tomorrow in support of Can't Stop the Music, which we sort of made a little joke about in that episode. And whoever booked the guests for that episode had to be aware of the incongruity. It's just too perfect. And I agree with that. The the one thing that kind of struck my mind, I mean, thinking of a guy like Alan Carr being paired up with a guy like Johnny Rotten, it sort of reminded me of... That one brief glorious time in the late 1990s where Alice Cooper and Pat Boone switched places for, I guess, an award show or some sort of concept album thing where Pat Boone wound up doing his version of hard rock stuff and then Alice Cooper wound up doing Pat Boone's versions of things. It it, it was just a, a clusterfuck to say the least back then, but it was like a really fun reference point because... You know, who, who would ever see something like that happen? That's just a really odd juxtaposition. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Cameron Archer, AKA Glorioski, again, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, for everything that you are writing to us. And we encourage everybody who's listening to this to write to us in the future. And we also encourage you to write any bits of fan mail that you want to send to us through our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook pages only. We sort of kind of have an email address, but we kind of have it as like a placeholder until we actually put in our official one in place. And these two actually came from the emails. But everybody else that's listening right now, if you have anything to say about any of our future episodes, please feel free to do so twitter and facebook at telehell podcast and we do thank you very much for writing in and of course don't forget to enter our contest that we announced at the beginning of the episode keep an eye out for a special tweet and this is a twitter contest only keep an eye out for that special tweet you like the tweet and you retweet the tweet, and you'll get two entries for all those TV screeners that we mentioned, a bunch of ABC, HBO, Showtime shows. And possibly by next week, we may even add a prize or two to that just for some runner-ups. But in the meantime, keep an eye out for that tweet. Like it, retweet it. That's how you enter to win. And uh, I think now we can close up the mailbag, and can we fade out now, please? I'm getting the thumbs up, so... Bye.